Good morning. Love it. Okay, you'll want to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is found on page 962 in those Blue Pew Bibles below you. Uh, What we aim to do here every week is to take a passage of Scripture, uh, explain the meaning of that passage, and then apply it to our lives today. And so that's what we're going to be doing uh, in this last little bit of 1 Corinthians 15 Uh, in our series, Resurrection Matters. And as we wrap up and think about uh, the ending of this four-week series of Resurrection Matters, there's actually, I don't know if you've noticed this, one group of folks that Paul has not particularly addressed quite yet in this chapter as as he's made enormous strides to help people understand the subject of this future event called the resurrection. And in this idea of the resurrection, he has been mostly addressing this idea that there will be the resurrection of the dead in Christ, those who have fallen asleep in Christ. As we saw in the first week, he spent much time on the gospel and its necessity for the resurrection of the dead. And then in the last couple of weeks, he's been dealing with the theological basis for the resurrection of the bed of the dead, not the bed, of the dead, and, and actually what that will look like bodily for those who are raised up from their corruption of death. While all this has been really edifying and really, really good, like I said, there's been one group that he's not quite touched on as we've been going through this chapter. Paul has not yet talked about the group of Christians that will still be alive when the resurrection occurs. So, for 100% of us in here, right now, at this very moment, Paul has not spoken to us about what the resurrection will look like for us. I think... In terms of what the resurrection body will look like, there is much to be said about what we talked about last week, that the resurrection body will be imperishable, incorruptible, spiritual, and and, and amazingly strong. All of those things will be true of our resurrection body, but he's not quite addressed how that happens for those who are alive in this particular event. So, as the Lord continues to give us here in this room breath in our lungs, there's a chance that Jesus could return before we die. I hope you all know that. That's a reality that we're all facing. So what will this resurrection and the reality of Jesus returning before we die, what would that look like for us? All of this, I actually believe, will be addressed by Paul in these final nine verses of 1 Corinthians 15. So let's get into it. Let's read 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 58, as we close out this series. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I believe the main idea for this passage as we wrap up this series is this. Resurrection matters because our labor is not in vain. I don't know if you see this in verse 58, but this is the only therefore that we see within this passage. Everything that Paul has been saying prior to verse 58 has been building and driving toward this application that he makes in verse 58. Much of what he's been doing in this book by exhorting the church in in Corinth about the various issues that they're dealing with, like church divisions, sexual immorality, how to deal with the Lord's Supper, and other different things that are going on. All of this has been coming to this point in 1 Corinthians 15, to do what he's saying here in verse 58. This is the main application, if you will, that he wants to make for these people. And what he's going to do is kind of walk, I think, through three big chunks of this passage in three different points. So in verses 50 and 53, we're going to see that there's this change that occurs, and I'm just going to be titling that point the change. In, this, in verses 54 through 57, we're going to talk about the victory. And then finally, in verse 58, we're going to be talking about the hope, all with this idea that resurrection matters because our labor is not in vain. So let's begin with verses 50 and through 53, the change. So after Paul talks about how the dead will be raised and the kind of body that they will have, it's almost as if, I don't know if you can kind of tell, the the tone of the text changes. It's as if Paul breaks out into a celebration or a praise of sorts for that approaching day of the resurrection. And in that praise, he wants the readers, he wants those who are alive in Christ specifically to realize the incredible reality for those who would be alive on the day of resurrection. He wants to say, Yes, the dead will be raised. All of us are going to have different bodies, but don't miss this, friends. Those who are alive in Christ will not miss out on this day. He says for those of us with flesh and blood, that means those of us in here, with perishable bodies, friends, we will be changed. Our current bodies, as we discussed last week, they will be transformed in the resurrection. They will be transformed to imperishable, strong, spiritual bodies, just like Jesus' body. Our current bodies are corruptible right now. But as Paul states, the incorruptible must, or excuse me, the corruptible must put on the incorruptible. Paul puts this this way in verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Because one of the implicit questions that's coming is, well, this is all happening, and, and you've said in the previous section that we must die in order to experience a resurrection. What do we do then, Paul? And he says, behold, I'm going to tell you this mystery. And he says in verse 51, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Wow! I mean, I want to read that again. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. I mean, think about what Paul is saying here in this verse. We shall not all sleep. Friends, not all of us will die. Some of us might be in here, in this room right now, who will see the day of the Lord's return and never experience the taste of death. Yes, some of us 
will die. Some of our brethren, even this week, have gone on to be with the Lord. But not all of us may die. Some of us may sleep. Some of us will be alive. But the reality is that all those who are in Jesus Christ will resurrect. All will resurrect. This idea of the resurrection for Paul is much more pervasive than just simply being raised from the dead. Resurrection for Paul is not just a change for the dead and their corrupted bodies of those asleep in Christ being transformed into those bodies that we talked about last week, but it's also for the future body of those who are alive in Christ. It's a future bodily transformation of of those of us in here who will have bodies that are imperishable, glorious, powerful, spiritual, and like Jesus' body. We will have that, friends. In a moment's notice, as he says in verse 52, in a moment's notice, in the twinkling of an eye, at the sound of a trumpet, this transformation of the flesh and blood that we have right now, all of that will be changed. All of us will be changed who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. And I believe that Paul is wanting us to see that there's a connection with the event of the resurrection for those who are alive and dead. And there's a connection with this event of Jesus' judgmental return. Just a newsflash, Jesus is going to come again. And He's going to come to judge. And what is He going to judge? He's going to judge whether or not you have placed your faith in His death and resurrection. He's going to judge whether or not you are His or not. And for those of us that are His, we will be changed. But like I said, Paul is wanting us to see this connection here, this implied suddenness of this event, of the resurrection and also the return of Jesus. It's extremely evocative. Both of these things will be happening. Jesus will come down from heaven in triumphal judgment. And at the same time, all of his people will be gathered together. Jesus actually spoke of this day in, in Matthew 24, 29 through, through 31, when he said, this is Jesus speaking here, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall down from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming down on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And this is where it's applicable to us. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. On that day of Jesus' return where he comes to judge both the living and the dead, what that means for those of us in Christ is that he will finally gather us. He will finally gather us for eternity, for paradise. For those of us in Christ, this sound of the trumpet, it will be a sound of great rejoicing. Why is it that we can hear this this heavenly trumpet, this twinkling of an eye that we can see? Why would this give us so much joy? Well, verse 53 tells us, right? For or because this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on the immortal. What that means, friends, is whenever we hear that trumpet, whenever we see Jesus coming down from the clouds, we can know that in our weakened and sinful flesh, all of a sudden, 
things are going to change for us. God has finally come to grab his children up, to take them with him so that they can enjoy his presence forever, to change them forever. If we are alive, and and I pray that we all would be lucky enough to hear that trumpet and to see that day, then all the promises of the resurrection will become realized for us. Everything that he's talked about previous to these verses will be true for us. And all of those things will be true for us without ever having to experience the sting of death. We will not fall asleep. We will not have to be sown into the ground, as Paul has stated in verses 36 through 37. Instead, in a mysterious way, in a way that only God knows, we will be transformed into our mortal, imperishable, and heavenly selves. We will be transformed to finally see our great Savior face to face. This probably doesn't get stated enough, but as we hear about that approaching day, and as we hear about the resurrection of not just the dead, but those who are alive in Christ, I hope you know that praying for and asking Jesus to return, hoping for that day, that's not a bad prayer at all. I actually believe that kind of prayer of asking Jesus to come back and to come back soon is is quite commendable. I also realize, though, that there's things in probably all of our lives that we wish we could do or even see before that day comes. I get that. Some of us might even have regret and shame about things that we haven't done or haven't said. But I wonder if you, brother and sister in Christ, see the unspeakable joy that our resurrection will bring. David Crowder put it this way in a song. Earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot heal. Friend, our deepest regret in the Lord will be wiped away by Jesus' return, by our transformation into the resurrection body. Our resurrection will bring unspeakable joy. When the perishable gives way to the imperishable, our earthly regrets and sorrows will give way to a heavenly communion with the Lord and a fellowship with all the saints of Christ that will be so overwhelming, so incredible, that we will only respond in worship and in praise of our great God. Earth has no sorrow, no regret, no shame, no missed opportunity that heaven cannot heal. If anything, I hope and I pray that as we see this day approaching for us in Christ, I pray that it would implore us to motivate ourselves, to implore others to join in on that day. We want others to experience this very same resurrection that Paul is talking about here. But on the opposite side of the coin, I realize that the sound of the heavenly trumpet will not be rejoicing for some. For many, and perhaps even some of you here this morning, the return of Jesus will be one of great fear and trembling. You will bow your knee, not in reverent submission, but in awestruck fear. The reality is that the event of the resurrection is not just isolated to those who are in Jesus Christ. 
The resurrection will also be a day of judgment for those who have not believed, have not trusted in, have not put their whole weight and faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It will be a day of weeping for those who have insisted and continued to live in their sin. It will be a day of eternal punishment that includes banishment and separation from the goodness and from the glory of God. You will be cast out of his presence forever. If you don't consider yourself to be a Christian, I I don't say these things because I want to scare you. That's not the idea here. If anything, I want you to see the unspeakable joy that you can partake in on the resurrection. But I wonder if that pit in your stomach is there for a reason. The return of Jesus is a day where great fear should be resting upon us. But friend, it could be a day of great joy. I want you to realize that it's a great day of joy because you are currently now missing out and you would be missing out by rejecting Jesus as the Savior of your life. We're going to be getting into this in a few moments, but Jesus has done and he's accomplished all things for you not to be cast into eternal judgment and eternal punishment. He has done everything for you to be wrapped up and embraced into his loving arms. And we're going to be getting into how he can do that. But I would implore with you this morning, if you have hardened your heart to this message, please, for a moment, just for a moment, open your heart and mind up to this message of the gospel whenever we get to it. Stop rejecting him and instead turn to him in salvation before it's too late, before that trumpet sounds and it is a fearful thing for you. This change, this resurrection, it can be yours too in Christ Jesus. This transformation though and this change, as I alluded to earlier, it's, it's not by anything that we do, but instead everything that the Lord does for us, which I believe we see in verses 54 through 57, which brings me to the second point of the sermon, the victory. The victory. Let's go ahead and read verses 54 through 57 once again. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. For any of us who are alive when Jesus returns and do not have to face the sting of death, these verses that I just read, they are the, they are the proverbial taunt. They are the battle cry, if you will, of God's children to the face of death and to sin, our great enemies. The day of resurrection for those who are alive in Jesus that end up being changed without dying, as we see here, it will be the prophetic fulfillment of Isaiah 25, what we read this morning in our passage before Pastor James prayed, and also of Hosea 13. And in both of these passages, we read of the judgment of the Lord coming upon those who have disobeyed God. But in that judgment, God provides salvation to those who are faithful, to those who trust in the Lord, to those whose trust is the Lord. And the salvation is so great that not even death would prevent the Lord from accomplishing his faithful promise to his people. 
I mean, do you hear that? Not even death will stop God from fulfilling His promises to His children. As Paul looks at those passages and he imagines this day where the sting of death does not even touch the Lord's children, he says that will be the day when the Lord's victory over sin and death, it will be fully realized. As Paul looks forward to the return of Jesus and sees the resurrection, he says that will be the day that all of God's yes and amens are fulfilled. But how does the Lord accomplish this victory? How do we know that these promises will be fulfilled? I believe verses 56 and 57 answer that for us. So let's just focus on those two verses just for a moment, please. First, in verse 56, Paul wants us to see that sin and death, they are intertwined. Our rebellion against God has a natural consequence. Our sin against God has a natural consequence. And Christians understand that the natural consequence of sin is death. Friends, God's just judgment against sinners is the proverbial and quite literal sting of death. Secondly, as Paul states in verse 56, the power of sin is the law. What Paul means here is that the sting of death, the power of sin, it was energized even more with the presence of the law. Paul speaks of the law and its, its power over sinners in Romans 7.5. He says, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So not only is the sting of death sin, but as the law is given to us in, in God's righteous and loving judgment, we see that our sinful nature, it becomes more aware of our sin, more aware of the sting of death, more aware of our shortfallenness to God's holiness. And as Paul says in Romans 7, 5, it was at work in our members to bear fruit for death. And bear fruit did it, does it not? You can read Romans 7 to see the Christian's angst and struggle with sin because of the presence of the law. We know brothers and sisters, that we do things that we're not supposed to do and we want to do the things that we're not able to do. We know that the presence of the law just energizes this feeling of our fallenness and the sting of sin. But thirdly, and finally, as we see in verse 57, Paul says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. To finally answer our question on how God accomplishes the victory of death for us, we find that it is through God the Son, through Jesus, that God conquers the enemy of death. He conquers the enemy of sin, and He conquers the enemy of the law. Jesus lived a perfect life, fulfilling all the righteous requirements of the law that God has set forth. And yet, in His complete perfection Jesus suffered he died on a Roman cross tasting the sting of death on our behalf but thanks be to God he did not stay dead did he he was resurrected and he was raised up from the grave and it is through his victorious resurrection that God quite literally and no pun intended gives the death blow to death he gives the death blow to the law. He gives the death blow to sin. He gives the death blow to death. 
It is by Jesus' death and resurrection that death will be swallowed up forever. To my non-Christian friend, this is what I meant earlier. This is what I meant when I said that Jesus has done and will do everything that is necessary for you to come to salvation to him. All you need do is trust in his atoning sacrifice on the cross in your place and believe in his resurrection. Trust in that today, friend, and turn from your sin. Turn from your rebellion. Repent and have faith in Jesus. He has done everything that you have needed to be reconciled back to God. You can do this today. And do it today, friend. You can find me, you can find Pastor James, Joel, any of the elders, maybe a member of Third Avenue who's just so ready to share the gospel with you. We would love to let you know how you can be reconciled back to our loving and holy God. Brothers and sisters, I wonder if you saw, though, who Paul says gains or is given victory through Jesus' resurrection. Let's, let's read this one more time in verse 56, or excuse me, verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus. Paul is saying that this messed up, often confused, and likely frustrating local church of believers in Corinth, they're the ones that are the partakers of this victory of Jesus. He's telling us that all the believing members that we covenant with here at South Canyon, we are recipients of Jesus' victory over death. It's for us who have trusted in the reality of Jesus' resurrection. We are the benefactors of this victory. It is those of us who have repented of our sins and instead have turned to Jesus Christ for obedience that we get to benefit in the resurrection. Very simply, if you're a Christian, Jesus' victory is your victory. Jesus' triumph over death is your triumph over death. As I just said a moment ago, because Jesus was resurrected, we too will be resurrected. And yet we can rightly give praise and honor to where it's due. We see this in verse 57, do we not? It doesn't say, but thanks be to Tanner. It says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We can give praise, we can give honor, we can worship the one who has given us the victory. And yet it is us that are the partakers of this victory. Our gratitude and our thanks for salvation, for our, resurrect, for our resurrection, must be placed, must be credited to God. All credit, all praise, all glory, all of our singing, all of our amens, all of our hallelujahs, they don't go to us. They go to our great God who raised Jesus from the dead. Well, I could use this point to, to argue for why this means we ought to sing really, really loud uh, during worship because of Jesus' resurrection, which you guys were doing. You were lovely singers. I, I could say something like that, or I could say that you need to seek and avail yourself to opportunities where we're corporately gathering as, as members of a local church to celebrate and to rehearse the gospel again and again. I, I think we could do that, but I think an illustration is actually going to serve best here. A pastor friend from seminary reminded me that when we gathered in the previous church that Laura and I were at, 
And even as we gathered in small groups, many of the members would start their prayers with something like, Father, thank you for saving fill-in-the-blank name. And what was really odd is it never mattered like what the prayer request was whenever they would start their prayers out with that. I mean, someone could have asked for prayer for a test that they were taking or, or an ailment like a sore throat that they were experiencing. But inevitably, no matter what, what we always heard in those prayers and those, from those requests was, God, thank you for saving so-and-so. Brothers and sisters, I want to do something a little awkward here. Take a look around at your brothers and sisters in this church. Take a moment to do it. It's okay. Take a look around. You can even stand up if you wanted to. Take a look around. Make note of one particular face. Look at them and be reminded that that person has been given victory in God. They have been given victory in God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. As a matter of fact, I want you to be thinking and looking at that person even right now. And let's just take five to ten seconds. Just pray for that person right now. Just pray and thank God for the fact that he saved them and given them the victory in Jesus Christ. Friends, this thanksgiving that we give to God for the members of our church, for the realized victory of Jesus' resurrection and his trampling over death and sin for that person you were praying for, this thanksgiving for all those who have placed their faith in Jesus and the victory that he accomplishes, it will give us more motivation for our work. It will give us more motivation for the call that he has given to all Christians. So how do we work for the Lord, if you will, between now and then, and between our frail, corruptible and sinful body now, how do we work for the Lord between now and then, knowing that the victory is already accomplished? Well, I think we see this in, in verse 58, in our final point of the sermon, the hope. The hope. Read along with me in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. As we see in verse 58, this is the main application that Paul has been wanting to get at in this whole chapter. Much of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth has been in an effort to help them see that the future event of the resurrection, it will have a dramatic effect on their day-to-day life. I mean, he addresses at one point saying, stop sinning, right? Some of you are claiming that there's no resurrection of the dead to just go on and sin, but he's saying, That's not even the point of what we're talking about here. You need to believe in the resurrection, but why should we believe it? It's because of verse 58 here. In in this exhortation that he's giving here, it's not really like a, hey, you better shape up. And if you don't shape up, oh man, God's going to be so frustrated at you. It's not that kind of exhortation. I mean, think about how much hope he's putting in their forefront because of the Lord. I mean, just very plainly, he says... Abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. So Paul, how do we do this? Well, I think he gives us two reasons how we can do this. First, he says, we need to be steadfast and immovable. 
And I believe in many ways, I think Paul is actually referring to being steadfast and immovable in what he was talking about in verses 1-11. through 11. He wants us to be steadfast and immovable in the Gospel. We need to remain firm and unmoving in the truth of what the Bible says the Gospel is. We know that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of God. We read this in Matthew 16. We know that's true. But local churches like ours, we show this idea to be true that the gates of hell will not prevail against God's church whenever we hold true and we do not give up the central tenet of our faith. Very simply, folks, we must cling and cherish the gospel. The more and more I watch the world and I watch what society espouses as salvation, the more and more I hear this message of saying, if you just believe in yourself, if you just become the truest version of yourself and what you think you are and you pursue that, the more I watch that, friends, the more and more that we must hold on to what this book says about the gospel. And we must proclaim it. We must teach it. It's not something we should be shying away from. The more and more I watch this world, the more and more I realize we need this message. We need this message that there's a God who has created all things and that every single one of us, all humans, are accountable to. We need to be told that we are sinners that deserve the just wrath of God for our rebellion against Him. We also need to be told that Jesus, being fully man and fully God, took the just punishment for our sin by dying on a cross and was raised on the third day. And we must also preach and proclaim that we must respond to faith in Jesus and we must repent of those sins that once got us under the curse of death. Friends, do not lose this message. This is what makes South Canyon South Canyon. We proclaim this week after week, not because it's something that we do just to check a box. We do this because we believe that this message gives salvation to its hearers for anybody who would call upon the name of the Lord. Cling to, cherish this gospel truth. Hide it in your hearts and don't let go of it. The second thing that Paul says we ought to do is we ought to be abounding in or making strides in the work of the Lord. We must be growing in the work of the Lord. And we need not look far to see what the work of the Lord is, do we? We're, we're, we're to make progress in, in Jesus' continual victory over sin and death by telling others how they can partake of this victory. That's what our mission is. That's what our work is. We make known what Jesus has done for them in his life and death and his resurrection to those who do not believe it. The work we abound in, friends, as a church, it's not something that we just do for the sake of righteousness. And, and just abounding in righteousness' sake is a good thing, but if that's the only thing that we're going after, that's legalism. What we need to abound in is gospel proclamation. Brother and sister, pray for that person you want to see saved. saved. Pray for them. Pray for them every single day. Pray that you would have boldness to share with them the victory that Jesus has won in his death and resurrection. Go and tell that person about the victory that we can have in Christ Jesus. Don't hold it for yourself. This work 
we do, friends, it's of no small importance. It's of no small matter in eternity. The lives of people who do not have Jesus are at stake. And we are called to abound in this work. I realize that some of us here are not the greatest evangelists, maybe aren't the most gifted at walking up to somebody and sharing the gospel. But friend, you are called to abound in this work. Start with praying and then see what the Lord does. Maybe your prayers are the only thing that that person needs to continue to feel the conviction of their sin so that they may hear the gospel message. The great news for us, friends, as we have already discussed, is we don't accomplish any victory over sin and death. And therefore, we don't accomplish any victory for a person to come to salvation. All we do is share it. And then we let the Lord accomplish the victory in the hearts and minds of those who do not believe him. But why do we do this work, Paul? Why should we be steadfast and immovable? Why should we abound in this work of the Lord? Well, as he states at the end of verse 58, we know that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. In the Lord our labor is not in vain. Our immovability, our steadfastness, and our abounding in the work of the Lord, friends, it's not for nothing. I realize that some of you have been praying for the same person the same family member, the same friend for years. Guess what? In the Lord, your prayers are not in vain. Your sharing with them of the gospel is not in vain. Your continual proclamation of the truth is not in vain for that person, friend. Because in the Lord, nothing is in vain. I'm so thankful that Pastor James, as he was talking about the kids and in the ministries that we have, we know that sometimes doing children's ministry, right, it can get a little tiresome. It can get a little wearying. But friends, your gospel work is not in vain. Taking groceries to that person, having to fight against the wall of depression again and again, ministering to those people, ministering to our friends who don't believe over and over again when it seems like it's just falling on deaf ears. It's not in vain, friends. It's not in vain because it's in the Lord that we do that. What we see here in this passage is everything that we do is purposeful, not purposeless. Why is that? Because our God is not purposeless. The death of Jesus was not purposeless. The resurrection of Jesus was not purposeless. Your salvation was not purposeless, friend. Your resurrection you're raising up into your glorious body, it will not be purposeless. Which means everything between your faith and your resurrection and Christ's return, it's not purposeless. We can know even in the middle of our suffering, even as we watched our loved ones fall asleep in Jesus Christ, even as we deal and battle with the fiercest bout of depression or illness, we can know that nothing is wasted in the kingdom of God. Nothing is purposeless. Nothing is in vain. Our labor is not in vain, brothers and sisters. And just as surely as God will make the day come where our resurrection change will happen, where our faith will be made sight, where we will see the 
victory of Jesus with new spiritual eyes. As surely as that day is going to happen, we can have hope that knowing that God, not us, God, not us, will bring us home and he will bring us home with him in eternity. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we ask that you would come quickly. We ask that you would return and that you would make good on these promises. And so between now and then, we ask for grace. We ask for grace whenever we fail in abounding in the work of the Lord and and fail at being steadfast and immovable. We ask that you would give us grace knowing that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. We ask this in the name of our Savior, who we ask to come soon. Jesus, please come soon. Amen.